people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. これを覚えておいてちょうだい。私の猛暑。この優しい腕の黒と影を。宝石と共に寝るよう。冷え冷えと煌めく不死道。不眠症の月。凍った入れ墨。熱い血は。黒時計が折れた。あ、緑が欲しいんだ。ホテルの出口、出口の見張ったの。銃で犯人だ。それから、500人中に押したら、外側頼む。黒時計、夕暮れの花。黒時計、朝焼けの爪。じゃあ誰も私と別れやしないわ。もともと本当の私なんていないんだから。犯罪と共に寝るよは、ときめきと悩みのソファ。不眠症の星。死体の瞳。火のような。おい、おい、君。誰も出てくまいね。でも出て行ったのか今でも若い男の人でした閉まった黒と影夕暮れの肌黒と影朝焼けの爪やるわね明智ねえ皆さん明智って素晴らしいと思います Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Carol Borden. Hey, everybody. We are kicking off a grab bag month of films with a movie I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, Kenji Fukusaku's neo-noir crime thriller, Black Lizard. It's the story of the titular Black Lizard, a thief played by Akihiro Miwa. She runs a nightclub that's bathed in lights of primary colors, and she plans to kidnap the daughter of a very wealthy jewelry merchant. We will be spoiling the Black Lizard both 1968 and 1962, as well as Fukusaku's follow-up, 
Black Rose Mansion. I would say that you should watch the film before you listen to this episode, but with these movies, it's kind of tough to find them these days, so we'll be discussing that a little bit more as we go along. But actually, you know what? I want to change things up because this episode was originally supposed to be about Black Lizard 1968, and then we would talk about Black Lizard 1962 and Black Rose Mansion, uh, which was, what, 1969 later on? But fucking A, Black Lizard 1962 was a godsend. Carol, thank you so much. I now have a new favorite movie. It is amazing, and it surpasses the 68. I thought Fukusaku's was the gold standard, but I watched this anyway film from 62, and my life has been changed. Wow, I did not expect that. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) Honestly, when you said that you had a surprise for us, I thought you were going to say that you got a Miwa interview. Yeah. No, I wish. I wish. I mean, it's really tough to – I mean, both of these movies are amazing, but I think 62 is actually it's, – it's just fucking fantastic. It's wild. It's also wild to think that there are two adaptations in the same decade, and they're both great, and they're both also based on – similar source material like not just the same story but also the same stage play adaptation watching the 1962 version which i haven't seen as many times as the 68 it's like why would you remake a movie that's already really good but they're both just gifts it's so delightful it's such a joy I've only seen it, like, I think I saw it for the first time in the last five years where I had seen the Fukusaku one, I don't know, when I was like a late teen, early 20s, both having read some Mishima in class and being curious about this movie that Mishima was apparently in, and then also looking for interesting queer movies. You you cannot discount, particularly in like a North American context rather than a Japanese context, the delightful queerness of Akahiro Miwa. But there's just something about seeing Machiko Kyo dance down that hall as a drag king that just brings so much joy to my heart. And like the difference in her relationship to the girl she wants to kidnap. Miwa, you believe, really wants to make a statue. But Machiko Kyo really seems attracted to Sane. And it's another thing. It's like, oh, it's so exciting to me to see this. It's such a delightful movie. And the musical elements were such a surprise. But it's also crazy that they're queer in very different ways. Like, what are the odds? So with the Fukusaku, that one for sure I saw first, because that one, to your point, that came out on VHS. Gosh, I was probably still working at Blockbuster at the time, so probably early 90s, maybe even late 80s. I don't know. But it was as I'm teen going into 20s type of thing and saw it and was just like, wow, this is wild. And I had no idea that Japanese film could be as fun as as that. After a while, it got to be kind of tough to see. Like, I don't own a VHS copy of it. I don't know if it's ever been released on DVD or Blu-ray. I know that there are like high def TV transfers of it. It must have shown on satellite at some point. But it's really tough. And so I just had in my mind, like, this is so good. And this is something that I saw when I was younger. And it really made this impression. 
And then out of nowhere, Carol, I didn't even know that the earlier version existed until you turned me on to it. And then when I watch it, it's just like the scales fall from my eyes. I'm just like, where have you been all my life? Because I'm, I'm a fan of stuff like the uh, live action Lupin the Third or Black Tight Killers or these kind of like really poppy, wild, out there type of things. And this just fits right into this. This is, you know, you think Seijin Suzuki is wild. This is right there. This is as crazy. The director of that is Umagetsu um, Inoue. Inoue directed 100, 200 movies in Japan. Very few of them are available in English translation. A lot of them are musicals. And I think it has a lot to do, like, I think his interest in that kind of musical theater really makes like this crime movie so delightful. Uh, Like the other movie um, really goes hard for the melodrama of this tragic, impossible love between them. And it it, uh, is, is delightful in its own campy way about taking the source material very well, it's not like Rampo isn't super serious, but it it makes it, it like elevates it to the seriousness so that it can become this melodrama. And the Inoue one with Mechiko Kyo is just so musical theater. It, it queers it up. It camps it in a different way. It makes it charming. And it it's just such a different twist on that kind of like Fantomas, uh, Lupin, you mentioned, super criminal movie. The 68 reminds me of Danger Diabolique quite a bit. The candy colors, the pop sensibilities, but you get a lot of that in the 62 as well. If anything, Western, the 62 version reminds me a little bit of the 60s Batman, the way it's like. It's like 60s Batman combined with musical, with like queer musical theater. It's like not as obviously kind of cool and postmodern as the Fukusaku. Rampo got really lucky in a way, although maybe he wouldn't think of it like that. But. He saw it. He saw the 62 one and he liked it. And then Inoue got to go do TV adventures of Detective Akechi Kagoro. Which is so amazing because like as somebody who knows Rampo because of his like gothic Aroguro stories it's like he's really more famous in Japan for the detective stories. And so the fact that Inoue went to go on to do more of Rampo's detective stories, or at least the stories based on the character, I don't want to keep saying the word delightful in this episode. I'm sorry. But it's, it's hard not to. <laughs> it's like it just it warms your heart. So we talked about Rampo, it was either last year or the year before, we talked about Blind Beast and Horrors of Malformed Men. And I'm so glad that since we talked about that, Blind Beast has gotten a really nice release. That was a little tough to find for a bit because it was early DVD release and now it's out there on Blu-ray. Highly recommended. And we talk a lot about Rampo and his predilections let's say and they are so on display in this movie so many of the things that you see like it was great while i was watching i think it was the 62 version of black lizard andrea's like is this about a blind sculptor and i was like no but you are (laughs) correct (laughs) based on a book by the same guy so 
the sculptures at the end, the whole thing with doubles, and there are doubles of doubles in this thing, the whole thing with the beards and not having the beards, just all of these like little things. And then, of course, you know, one of his most famous stories is the human chair. So in here, you've got the couch that <laughs> having a conversation with the couch is fucking amazing. <laughs> and when she's dancing with the couch. <laughs> But it's like the it's like the family friendly version of the human chair. <laughs> oh, it's so good. But yeah, he's just he's so happy with his own fetishes that it's just like, yeah, here you go. Here's all my stuff and I'm just moving the pieces around and it's coming together in just this little bit different new way. And I love it. And like when they go to her island towards the end, I'm like, okay, this is totally horrors of malformed men with the island and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Sane being uh, doubled and all this or and the uh, whole who's really the double, you know, like at the end of the movie, I don't think they really ever settle who's actually the double and who's the real girl. And they're okay with that. They both have decided that they've had it with Owase and his capitalistic shenanigans. Which I thought was very interesting compared to the other one, because the other one is very transgressive, more in a way that I think of Rampo, and feels a lot more Mishima to me. I always surprise myself again, looking at, like I was doing research again, reminding myself, and I'm like, oh yeah, Kaneto Shindo did the screenplay for this one. He's the one that adapted Mishima. And so, like, of course, he's going to be like, stick it to the man. And look, he treats it where like, there's more doubling with like paralleling. At least the black lizard has a heart about her crimes where Owase just treats his daughter like another possession. And like, how are they different? And I, I do think that shows up in Rompo the way that so many of the themes have to do with the sort of sexual obsessions that we talked about a little bit, but he definitely has a lot of judgment for these wealthy controlling characters or even or even these sort of like family characters who just want to have complete control over their offspring, like which shows up in, in something like Blind Beast. But in both versions, what makes Black Lizard more compelling is that you don't really feel all that sorry for Iwase. He's stressed out about having his daughter potentially kidnapped and getting these threatening letters. But in both versions, you're, he's kind of gross. It might just be my impression, but it, it seems like he's also less present in the 68 one compared to the 62 one. Yeah, the 62 one really wants to humiliate him, especially when it comes to the replacement of his daughter and that he's been sleeping next to a fake body with a fake head the whole time. And the way he picks up that head and carries that doll head around with him for so long. Yeah, no, you're an idiot that you didn't even notice that it wasn't your real daughter and that she is even in the room. Uh, the black lizard is in the room at one point and pretending to be her and you just see her from the back. So he's clueless as to that's not even his real daughter. To be fair, he did take some sleeping pills. That's true. You should sleep late, man. It's just much easier on your constitution. But then he did spend, like, what was it, six weeks with the the switcherude Sane? Didn't notice. Everybody else, the maids and stuff, they seem to notice there's something wrong with her. She And she doesn't even play piano the same. Her voice has changed. But all she needs is a couch. If you get her a couch, she'll cheer right up. Which, that line of dialogue... In the 68 one, it might be my favorite, but it, it's like, he's like, you know what? She's stressed out. She just needs this new couch that costs like probably $50,000. Oh my God. Yeah. 
that a tie made from the same material would cost you 5,000 yen. And here you have the same material being all through, you know, covering this couch, upholstering this couch. Which, spoiler alert, it's going to wind up in the ocean. Though luckily there's some uh, floaters in there, so it keeps it up. I always talk about who's the real protagonist and who's con- controlling the story. And this this book and movie present me with problems because in the, the book, and we'll talk more about the book as we go along, but with the book, obviously it is very much Rampo's story. And he <laughs> will stop and he will be like, hey, reader. If you thought that I was crazy by saying that Sanai was here and we already know that she's someplace else, that's because – and he will explain things. He'll take the reader by the hand and be like, hey, hey, you know, did you remember that? Do you remember this thing? He is very much the narr- narrator of this. But then it's fascinating because so much of the story is from Black Lizard's point of view. Like It, it, it is very close third-person narration to – Black Lizard and what she's going through. You come to the 62 movie and we start with Akechi, who is basically Rampo's version of Sherlock Holmes and the way he addresses the audience. So now we're very much in his hand and I love him addressing the audience. And I think we get that again later on. He's addressing the audience, but he seems to be looking off into space at the time, but he addresses us. And then these two men come out on screen with him and he's like, who are these guys? Oh, we'll talk about that later. And then they address us as the audience. It's like, what am I watching? This old sea captain with a crazy big eye, these awful teeth, a scar on his face. And then you have this old man with a bandage around his head and this long beard. At first, I thought it was a turban. And I'm just like, what is happening? This like triumvirate of of narrators that are all talking to us and they know what's going to happen but we don't but then once we move past that again it becomes more of the black lizard story like we really follow her more than we follow a catchy but that's what i love about all three of these the story and the two films is i think they're so unabashedly fascinated by black lizard i mean the way black lizard is written it's just here's this incredibly gorgeous charismatic diabolical gender bending super villain who everyone falls in love with or is at least attracted to which not to get too ahead of where we're going but i felt like the way that fukasaku continues that with black rose mansion which isn't really a sequel. It's just sort of Miwa is so great in this role. It's kind of like a spiritual sequel because you're so still able to imagine the way that people just will throw themselves at this character. I catch he's like, do you hear that whip? And it's like this whole thing of, is the music in the film diegetic or not diegetic? Because there are moments where it's like, she has a theme and there's this whistling theme that comes up. She's got a couple themes, but there's a whistling version that comes in. And it's like, can people hear that? Or is that just me as the audience? Am I the only one that hears that? But it feels like people in the movie hear music. And it's like, they can almost tell like, shit, Black Lizard's coming because I hear that whistling. But It's also this, something she would do. Because she loves to warn people that a crime's about to be committed. And it has to be an artful crime like that. It can't be just like a regular crime. It has to be beautiful. That's why you fall in love with her is the artistic crimes. 
And going back a little bit to what you were saying before about it, it focuses on her, but in a certain sense, Akechi's value is that he appreciates her and he gets her. And so we go along with Akechi and Akechi helps us appreciate her, even while acknowledging that she's doing some really horrific and terrible things. Yeah, he really seems to admire her. And then, you know, as the movie goes on, he's falling in love with her. Jun gets her in a way that she doesn't like. Like, Jun sees her weaknesses in a way she doesn't want to be seen, aside from the fact that she's not attracted to him. And so he can torment her with his his tr- uh, trumpet playing and his trumpet theme that sh- people do hear and makes your whole thing about the diegetic music a little blurrier. Jun Amamiya? Yeah. Who shows up in these opening credits. The opening credits are a musical number to beat the band. As I'm listening to the music and watching the dancing, I'm just like, this is like a Fosse number. This is like Hey Big Spender from Sweet Charity or something. It is just remarkable. And then, yeah, at one point, the music just kind of flows and it becomes him, Jun, playing this trumpet solo. And I'm like, wow, okay, what's going on? Is this trumpet player going to come back in the movie? And yeah, he does in a big way. But it's just amazing that they're setting up all this stuff. And then even Black Lizard's song from the beginning of the movie pretty much tells you a lot of stuff that happens in the film. Like, as I'm watching the opening, and they start talking about a sofa. I'm just like, what? What are they talking about? So, like, Because sofa translates from Japan, uh, Japanese into English. Wouldn't you know? It's the same darn word. So it's just like, da-da-da-da-da, sofa. And I'm like... Why are they singing about a sofa? (laughs) And then as the movie plays out, it's like, oh, yeah, here's the sofa. And just the things that they sing about end up happening in the movie. So it's almost like, here's a preview of everything that's going to happen. Eventually, you'll see these things. It's kind of like those two men that showed up with a catchy. It's so economical in a way that these sort of movies, we talked about black tight killers earlier. I feel like when movies are really stylish like this, it's easy to be deceived that it's going to be kind of style over substance. And they're just sort of putting in some gorgeous filler content. But here I feel like, especially in the Fukusaku version, but really in both versions, they don't really waste much time. They embed so many things that the same is true of the story, where it's like the first time that you read it, you might miss some details that are kind of foreshadowing what's about to happen, especially if you haven't read any other Rampo. Part of the joy of rereading the story and rewatching these films is you start to notice like, oh, they're they're not wasting any time at all. They're very excited about all the crimes that are about to happen. Yeah, it's super economical. And this movie just moves at a breakneck pace. They know what people are there to see. Like people have been like their audience with that they were making the film for knew the story, knew all these crimes. They're like, oh, look, it's the human chair. I'm very excited to see the human chair. Like, (laughs) oh, it's the human statues. Oh, no. Yeah. And the way that they treat the human statues in each is pretty interesting as well. And it makes it almost feel like they're a decade apart, not just a couple of years apart. Like, how much more perverse the second version is. So I was getting a big Sherlock Holmes Moriarty thing, but then I was thinking it's kind of more Sherlock and Irene Adler with the way that he admires her and gets a little flustered by her. 
in this whole thing of her, as soon as she hears the father, he introduces Akechi to Black Lizard because she's in disguise and kind of has ingratiated herself with Sanai, the daughter. He's like, oh, yeah, here's Akechi. No case he hasn't cracked. And of course, his reputation is already out there. She already knows who he is. But when he says that, you almost see like a little like glint in her eye, just like, oh, he's about to take a fall, man. And you're talking about the economy, too, because I want to say that pretty soon after the introduction, there's a shot where you get this uh, anniversary clock really big in the foreground. And then that clock is going to play a bigger part later on when it's this whole countdown to midnight. But it's so nice that they even sh- set up that clock beforehand. They're, they're so smart when it comes to the way this is shot. But I also think if you've read a fair amount of Conan Doyle or Agatha, Agatha Christie, as soon as someone's like, it's going to happen at midnight you're immediately like, all right, when is it really happening? Because that's clearly some kind of distraction (laughs) in such like a fun way. Yeah, because she's sending these poison pen letters like crazy to the father, the jeweler. It's just like, watch out for your daughter. And I love in the book, they have the the detail that all the letters come from different places in Japan, and they're all written in different handwriting. So like, there's no pattern to them. The pattern is that there is no pattern. Doesn't this random scattering of sight seem desperately random? Yeah, that's the one thing that I kind of miss from the books. Both adaptations are pretty faithful, aside from a few scenes. But the one thing that I think the story is able to emphasize more is this idea that Black Lizard is like really this this just like mastermind who, very Phantomas style, who has like manipulated all of these different groups of people into working with her. It's not some sort of like cohesive thing. Like they don't all know about each other. So it's like, she's got these pockets of useful people in different factories and these different informers. And it's just, it's like so well built, like in terms of the world building. You just made me think of a connection I hadn't made till you were just talking because it's it's like she has this artistic crime collective. And then I'm like, oh, my God, it's like the Testament of Dr. Mabuza. It's totally Thank like you that. for that. Thank you so much for that. I don't know why, but in my head, it was just like, oh, Fantomas, except Fantomas to me. And I haven't read all the stories, but to me, Fantomas always seems so solitary, whereas Mabuza is so much more concerned with having these underlings and these whole like networks of underlings. And that's totally Black Lizard. And and his whole network is not doing normal, like they're doing normal crimes, but he has a goal that isn't like, I'm going to like control the whole all of Berlin or, you know, like I'm going to become the godfather. It's I'm going to have my empire of crime and it's going to be weird and artistic and awful. And she has her nightclub where she has all her, like in the book and and in the Fukasaka one, she has her nightclub where they all meet and she manipulates them and she grants their wishes. And, but she also does her weird art crimes, which is part of what I find appealing. And like, if I was a, a criminal mastermind, I'd want to do weird art crimes. Me too. I suspected when she rewards her underlings that's 
Oh my God. <laughs> and that she gives one of them a name, you know, you will now be blue turtle cause she's black lizard. And then you may, here's a jewel for you. And then she gives out cause jewelry is so important to her. And the jewel at this, the, the, what is it? The Egyptian star is the heart of this movie. Or is it really her heart is the heart, you know, this whole thing. But I love how. She's giving away these baubles to her underlings and just you know, rewarding their good behavior for helping her commit this crime. And when the four guys come in that helped her with the couch, oh my God. Because <laughs> 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 they come in dancing and then they do this whole thing of like presenting and each one gets a line. It is fantastic the way that we're sh- we're shooting their feet and we get to see the footwork of them coming in because we saw kind of similar when they were bringing the couch in and then taking it out the way that they all move in time oh my fucking god it's so good they deserve those titles with their little dances and i love the how well it adapts to musical theater i also love the way that that in a way version in the 68 68- Fukusaku version, there's like kind of some psychedelic imagery, the way you would associate with late 60s, like you already brought up Danger Diabolic. There are certain scenes that remind me of Godzilla versus Hedorah, which also has this kind of psychedelic thing going on. But in the earlier, in a way, there are these kind of psychedelic precursor scenes where somebody will be talking and there will just be a thousand diamonds behind their head. <laughs> it's so where good. the lights change behind them. And then you get the canted angles totally remind me of Batman and yeah, the lights changing the lights coming on. And yeah, that shot, I think you were just talking about too, with all of the stuff and there was like the gun hanging there. And it was like a, a weird mobile over her father's head. I was like, where is this coming from? This is brilliant. You know she's best friends with Catwoman. She's just... Catwoman's one of her henchmen. Catwoman is a jewel thief so that she can steal jewels for Black Lizard. I love the father at one point when he's just sitting there gloating. You're talking about how, you know, we're taking him down a peg and he's just like, I've got the best diamond in Japan, the best daughter in Japan, the best detective in Japan. It's like, oh, you are going to fall hard, dude. I recently rewatched and for my own podcast did an episode on zero woman red handcuffs where for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's this like later pinky violence movie that's super rough, but it has basically this plot about how this rich guy who wants to become a politician, part of his maneuvering is that he has the best daughter in Japan and wants to marry her to the son of the heir to this company that will sort of solidify his aims to be a politician and amass more power. And for some reason, this time rewatching the movies, it just made me think of the parallels to the way that that father is. And they're very different movies. Like that one is later in the 70s. It's much more violent. But, like, because the daughter is kidnapped and in that film is raped and the father's like, well, you know what? Can't use you anymore. No longer the best daughter. See you later. And it it made me feel like if there's a late if there was a later version of Black Lizard, it would be the same thing. It's like he's the same type of dad. It's so awful, which is also part of why, like I said earlier, you don't 
feel that bad for him. You just want Black Lizard to win. And you're okay even if she wins over Akechi. It becomes this bet of like, oh, if uh, you can't solve this crime, then you're going to give up being a detective. And if you solve the crime, then I will give up all my jewelry. I mean, she's pretty much right there admitting to Akechi, I'm the person that did it. You just now need to solve it. It's like, now here's the almost a locked room type of puzzle that you need to figure out. I think some of it for me is beyond the fact that Black Lizard is fabulous as a person. Like all the stuff she's doing is amazing and fun to watch and all that kind of thing. But you, I expect more from a detective. Like a detective is not supposed to be like, ha ha ha, what a fun puzzle. Or I'm going to kind of let you get away just to see what you're going to do. Or I'm going to switch your daughter with this other woman who's poorer. And then she's going to be stuck in your house for six weeks. And then she's going to have to go to the island and fear becoming a human statue. Like I, I expect morally more from Akechi than I do from her. I mean, he's a bit of a bastard. He's a lovable bastard, but he's definitely a bastard. She's right when she says he's cold-hearted. That relationship between the two of them, it's like the sheer number of times that he gives her leeway. And it's like he could arrest her or he could kill her. But instead, he's like, well... Instead of arresting you, I'm just gonna hide on your ship or disguise myself as this hunchback that you confide in. It's like, he just loves the game. He doesn't care about justice. Because he does try to arrest her right around that time of the kidnapping, but instead it's like, oh wait, nope, she's got a gun. And then that whole thing of her locking the door with all the men inside and they're banging on stuff and you get that shot from outside and you have them on one side and she's on the other and that's when she does the whole drag thing and then the song comes in and for some reason i wrote down that the song at that moment reminds me of your mean one mr grinch just the way that it's like you know ooh, black lizard look out for her you know she's she's got a, a disposition like a, a seasick crocodile Just hopping and and twirling her way out of the hotel because she's even like bopping out of the the once she goes down the elevator and of course you got the guys going up she's going down she makes it to the lobby and she's just spinning around people it is so fun to watch it's like a great moment in cinema it really is I wish so I think the sixty two version might be on the Criterion channel but because of like you were saying earlier, the inaccessibility of these, like, I don't know why they haven't gotten any kind of fancy Blu-ray release, but it's like, if you hear of them at all, you hear of the Fukusaku. Yeah, and I think the 62 one is also available on DVD, and I think with subtitles, but again, not a Blu-ray release, I think. And like I said, I had no idea, and I'm not saying that I'm some sort of supreme cinephile or something, but I had no idea that it existed until you brought it to my attention, Carol, but you have so much more knowledge of this stuff than I do. I blundered into it. Like, I found it online, blundered into it, had never heard about it, and 
now it's one of those films that I bother other people about because like the Fukusaku one is great and I don't want to take anything away from it, but this film deserves so much more attention than it gets. Yeah, it's tough. It's like choosing your favorite child sometimes. It's like, well, I can't really say one is better than the other, but I have to say they're both fantastic. But yeah, if you you really everybody that is listening to the sound of our voices needs to see both of these, but find the 62 one immediately, ground it up as a powder and snort it, cook it up in a in a spoon and shoot it into your veins. This movie is like that. It's just amazing. I don't know. I think I would recommend snorting the 1962 version in one nostril and the 1968 in the other nostril and just let them blend. (laughs) I would like to add that you should do it from an old-fashioned poison ring. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Or or from some sort of ornate box that also holds the Star of Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Really just start crushing up diamonds and snorting them. Though I am not a medical doctor. Yeah, my notes in this are just like, I love this. Or when we come to the sofa, the best sofa in Japan, you know? <laughs> the and best then you daughter. look at that sofa. <laughs> that sofa's so weird. It's not the best sofa. Yeah. No. No, it's, it has the most expensive upholstery in Japan, I think, is what it is. I mean, and then some you know drunk guy throws up on it. The first time I read the story, so I saw the Fukusaku film first read the story, and then saw the Inoue film. And reading the story, I was like not expecting the drunk guy vomiting to be a key plot element as to how they're getting <laughs> the expensive sofa out of the house, like, and not suspecting that it's anything fishy or suspicious. <laughs> and the housekeeper that works for the, the jewelry guy who – what they say, like, she's worked there forever. Like, sh- they planted her months and months ago. So, like, Black Lizard has been planning this out for a long damn time. I like the way that they handle it in the 68, but I love the way they handle it in the 62 when she's in that dark kitchen and the, the lights come up behind her and stuff. And she's like, the monkeys are holding candles, like making those that phone call with all the code words and like the code goes on forever. It's so good. And then, yeah, it's just like, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I called the, uh, the furniture guys. They'll be here any minute now. And then here comes those four dudes that work for Black Lizard that come marching up the driveway all in time. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was more speaking in code because it's one of my favorite moments in both movies because it's just so like everybody knows what's happening, but you're almost relieved where it's like, oh, yes, she is working with Black Lizard. <laughs> I love her arc from that code. And then I just enjoy watching her the rest of the movie. So like she escapes and she does, she does her little dance when she gets her reptilian title. And then like the rest of it, she's like, I'm dressed up like a salty old sea dog for the rest of the movie. And I'm like, you are just delightful in both movies. And in the other one, she's kind of scary because she goes kind of like what I would call snake lady after all the, like, I've seen a lot of noggin films and, and movies where women turn into snakes And she has like, she's the one with the shiny eyes that throws the snake at them later on. I did kind of miss that. Well, I guess miss is the wrong way, but it would be neat if she also had snakes and shiny eyes and the the Inoue one too. I mean, it would totally fit. 
black lizard, green snake or something instead of blue turtle. I think snakes would be a little bit more threatening than if she carried around a turtle with her. Maybe she's a snapping turtle. Yeah, it's like one in each each hand. Just chucking them. Oh my God, that would be so scary if someone chucked a snapping turtle at you. That would be horrific. Having this conversation makes me wish that there were more sequels or even like offshoots where we got to see some of Black Lizard's henchmen really kind of shine, which like kind of happens in the Bond movies where you see people like Rosa Klebb get to go on and have these sort of whole other careers. And where's Green Turtle? Yeah, I want to know like her backstory and how she met Black Lizard. I mean, we get a we get the flashback of the trumpet player, but we don't get everybody else's flashback i would love that and i love that they're just they're so casual about like here's a flashback here's basically whatever we need in this story we're going to use it it doesn't matter we're telling a story by any means necessary whether it is a catchy talking to us i talked about how he makes a mention later on where it's like this whole case is just such a pain in the ass and he's just like i should have charged more and it's like are you saying that to us or are you saying that to the world like we're hearing it you know and i think you know that we're here and that's this whole thing of like this movie is a movie and it's just like this is a movie and we are going to do all of these movie things and make you aware that you are watching a movie but in the most fun way possible we do not care about realism realism would just slow us down and do you really want that or do you want artful crimes yeah, I already I want have enough crimes. real depressing crimes. I want artful crimes. I want her with her little guy henchman with his black, like, kind of flowing hat that he's got. All of those guys on the boat just, like, heave-hoeing the uh, the couch over the side. And that amazing, you know, you talked about Godzilla versus Hidorah earlier. There's a couple great miniature shots, like when she's making the exchange for the money. And she's like, oh, there's a helicopter outside. And you see that model of the helicopter <laughs> out there and then when they throw the couch in the water it's like here's this model of the couch and it is bigger than the model of the boat because the boat is supposed to be way in the distance further away yeah yes i love it so good it's almost hard to talk about these two movies because we're just like giving a list of things that are amazing and it's hard for me to think about things that I don't like or was frustrated with. It's just like wonderful from beginning to end, other than the fact that the movie has to end at some point. Yeah. Well, that's the delightful thing is we can go back and rewatch it. And that's since I watched it the first time I've watched it twice more. They both accomplish exactly what they're setting out to do. And so if you don't like it, you're just not going to like it. And if you like it, you're like, oh, it's delightful. Watch it. It's it's enjoyable. I don't care about whether or not it's realistic. And and so it does make it more difficult to talk about because like so few things accomplish exactly what they're trying to do. And both of them do it. The Fukusaku one is like a great vehicle for Miwa and all the things that that she does as Black Lizard with, you know, like she does a lot of her cabaret performance. So if you're like, I really like Miwa and I want to see a lot of Miwa in outfits and playing the Black Lizard and doing crimes and singing, you and laughing. get a lot of that. Oh. Laughing. Yes. Yes. 
which is a very Japanese thing. Like when people laugh like that in the movies, it for whatever reason, it just drives Andrea crazy. She's like, oh, that laugh. And it's like she says that a lot because they will laugh in, you know, the Lone Wolf and Cub movies that we watch or Throne of Blood. I mean, Lady Macbeth basically laughs like that. There's so but many times. Oh, it's yeah. Oh, God, yes. And that one it is. But there are so many times with that laugh. It's just it's kind of like the the blacked out teeth and the eyebrows, you know, that look like dirt kind of the thing. The fancy it's, ladies. Yeah. It's like the fancy lady evil laugh type of thing. The fancy married ladies who aren't allowed to be attractive to other men anymore. And it, who have lost it and have power. Whereas... Black Lizard has power, and I guess you could make a case that she's lost it, or you could make a case that she's won and has sort of conquered modern society. Well, and she's like Mrs. Hart. She's gorgeous. You know the one who's doing the laughing, though? Miwa has a fantastic evil laugh in, in uh, the Fukusaku, but it's uh, Iwase Masao Mishima who's doing the, the maniacal laugh in the Inoue one. I was noticing it today because I watched it today for to catch up in time. And he was doing the laugh, the laugh you're talking about. Which is so weird to have him doing it. I was so thrilled when I finally realized that Oki Minoru was the replacement Lord Watsudo in the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Like, he's not in those first few, but he's in the, I, the what, the, is it the third or fourth, fifth, and sixth? I think he comes in and does it. He's not the who I love so much, but he's pretty good, Retsudo. Yeah, I don't want to be the kind of guy who's just like, oh, if you don't like fun, you won't like this movie, but. But seriously. Seriously, yeah. Like, if you don't like this movie in the first five minutes, turn it off. Just, you're not going to enjoy it. You'll never like it. No, if if it gets your hook, its hooks into you in the first five minutes, you're going to fall in love. You know, I am in love with this movie now. And it's just like, that's why I'm like, all right, change of plans. We're going to talk about this one first. We're going to, you know, take a break in a few seconds here. We're going to hear from Professor Earl Jackson. And then we're going to talk about the 68 version, which, you know, at the same time, that was the impetus for this episode was mm-hmm. that I love that movie that much that it's just like, yeah, let's talk about this one. But the 62 version just bowled me over. I feel like when Sanai sees the trumpet player and just you get that thunderbolt, it's like uh, Michael seeing Apollonia the first time in The Godfather. Yeah, and I'm sorry that I kept basically not just talking about the 62 one, but constantly comparing them because they're oh, both no, like you're equally fine. in my brain. Oh, yeah. No, it totally makes sense. I did the same thing, too. You're fine. You're- <laughs> it's, we it's failed also, you, Mike. We have. But You're it's fine. also genuinely hard for me to think of two adaptations of the same source material that I think are equally great. Like, uh, my brain's empty right now. People are just like, I fucking hate remakes, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, uh, the version of the Maltese Falcon is probably the remake it's not the the first or the second version of it so i'm sorry to tell you that sometimes remakes are better than the original 1911 frankenstein should be enough for anyone exactly that's it they made it once why do you need to make it again i mean dracula they made 
how many times before the 1932 one and the 1932 one they made twice in one year at the same time on the same set. That's a good one, too, because there's so many Draculas I like. I even like the really bad ones, so I Mm -hmm. shouldn't be allowed to chime in. (laughs) Count Dracula's great love. Yes, Dracula, dirty old man. (laughs) Big fan of Defula myself. Spermula. Oh my goodness. There are so many. Oh boy. <laughs> when they reveal that Sanai is a double, and we've got the Sanai who's coming in the room and the Sanai who's in the cage with the trumpet player, we're doing split screens there, right? I think so, yeah. That's it's, amazing. Yeah, I was looking for it, and there was a little waiver, but I don't even know if I was really seeing a waiver or if I was just looking so hard. It looks so good to the point where I was like, are they using twins for this? I mean, it looks honestly that good. And like, there's a little bit of difference. Like the one's hair is a little bit different. Obviously they're in different outfits and everything, but they look great. And the, just, there are multiple shots of that. So they're not doing like the whole, you know, the back of this woman and the front of this woman kind of thing. We're going to switch off. There are multiple shots of just full on. Here's two Sinai's. And they're reacting to each other. Believably. That's also one of my favorite things about Japanese cinema from this period into the 70s as well, is they're just like the practical effects, even when they use miniatures, and maybe now it looks silly to some people, it's always so exciting. And this is just another example of that. It always looks great. And then the other thing that I think about a lot is the actors are always delivering. Like they're always bringing it. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. It doesn't matter how low budget is. The actors are there and they are, they are performing. They're not, you know, like you see some Italian films where American actors have gone in and they're like, I'm getting my check and it's showing my performance. I've never seen that happen in this area of of Japanese movies. Some of that might be that, so many of them have theatrical training, like for whatever reason, and I know we'll talk about this more in a, in a little bit, but for whatever reason, my like reading and film watching in the last month or two, I just can't get away from Miwa. Miwa just keeps popping up everywhere, but it's like Miwa was part of uh, Terayama's experimental theater troupe. It's not like it goes, you know, from somebody who's performing in nightclubs to now they're in this film. It's it's like so many of these people have these just incredible career profiles, which I don't think you always associate with, or you really don't associate very often with cult movies in the U.S. It's It's like a lot of those people couldn't really get work elsewhere or... Somebody like John Carradine, who will just be in anything. It's it's so different. So let's go ahead and we're going to take a break. And we'll be back with an interview with Earl Jackson, Professor Emeritus of Foreign Languages and Literature at Asia University, right after these brief messages. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts. Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. 
Can you tell me a little bit about you and how you got into Japanese culture and literature? Um, it was a, a total accident. So I was a, a German major as an undergrad and was accepted to a PhD program in German. But before I went, I was at the University of Buffalo. And before I went, I always wanted to learn Hungarian. And so I went to this program called the Critical Languages Program, which does unusual languages. They said the Hungarian tutor quit the day I applied. So would you mind trying Japanese? And I said, I have no interest in Japanese whatsoever, but they sort of insisted. And the, the class was terrible, but I fell in love with the language, the grammar immediately. I turned Yale down and went to this full-year Asian language concentration program at Cornell. It was six hours a day, five days a week, from June until June. And back then, no one was doing this. So you, you get this full ride. It was amazing. And then the people running the program had connections to a medical school outside of Tokyo. So I had this full year, and like, like two weeks after we finished, I'm on a plane to this little medical school in the middle of rice paddies. And so I audited pre-med for all summer in Japan and then went around the country. Whenever anybody's taking Japanese, I said, there's no bad reason to take Japanese because everybody, originally everybody did it by accident because no one knew that Japan would become a world power. You know, like this was like 1977 that I was in Japan for the first time. And people just thought I was like a hippie. And people like in the medical school, I'd be in an elevator and everyone in the elevator was talking about me. You say, look at those big feet. I bet his shoes could be used for children's coffins. So it was quite an adventure. And I feel extremely lucky that I got into it when I did. Yeah, because it was just a few years later that you know, we had the auto crisis and people were blaming Japan for everything. Yeah, and Thornbirds. I don't know if you remember that old, awful uh, TV miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain. That was an incredible hit. So by that time, I was like in, in grad school. And people were coming, knocking on my dorm door saying, have you seen the Thornbirds? You know, Japan's pretty interesting. Do you mean Shogun? Uh, was that what it's called? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. That's what it was called. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I block it. Yeah. Yeah, the Thornbirds is another Richard Chamberlain vehicle. Yes, Shogun. Throwing my credibility as a Japanese lit person. Wrong. <laughs> 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 Do you want to say it again? I mean, I, no, no, no. I'm okay. No, no, no. I mean, forgetting the title of Shogun, I think is actually a mark of honor. So. What do you do with this knowledge now that you have? You're working in Japan. Obviously, you, you don't go into the medical field. I did that. Then I went back and then I did a master's in medieval Japanese literature at Cornell and then went on to other grad schools. And my PhD, though, is in comparative literature with a focus on Japan. So, how did you get into? Japanese film? Was it through the language? So my first master's is on no. So I used to haunt the no theater. So I have an affinity for performance. But once I started seeing films other than Kurosawa, things that people, anybody could see, I got really intrigued. Now, however, I have a much deeper appreciation for Kurosawa now to say and also. But back then when there was the only show in town, I sort of resented it. Now, I've been doing Japanese stuff for, well, I've been doing Japanese films since the early 90s. And the utter richness and immensity of the Japanese film canon, you cannot believe. Because I watch four movies a week, at least, and I am still discovering films, Japanese films, I've never heard of, that completely blow me away. It's, it's one of the most complex bodies of work I've ever seen. So we're talking about Black Lizard on this episode. Black Lizard, 
Kurotokage, and also Black Rose Mansion. Two of those adapted, you know, the same story from Rampo based on a Mishima a play that so many layers going on in here. You know, it depends on your mood for these films. Sometimes they're actually, frankly, unwatchable. But the complexity of what's going on is really great. I, I call Rambo a neon gothic because, you know, he, he was documenting the Ginza in the late 20s and early 30s. And they'd had a lot of neon, but he was interested in the shadows, the neon casts, you know. And Rambo is, oh, my God. I mean, he has a style that is utterly delicious. To, to tell you the truth, I've never read Black Lizard in English. But in Japanese, it's just gorgeous. Now, the problem with that, though, is that Mishima is a very competitive stylist. You know, he can be really clunky. I mean, when he's good, he's great, but he can be absolutely unbearable. And the two really clash on these things. The other problem with the film is that they'll take either Mishima style or some passages from the Edogawa text and turn it into dialogue. That's why the dialogue sounds so weird. Because the dialogue is actually descriptive prose, usually, or is often based on descriptive prose written in 1934. And Japanese changes a lot. You know, so to hear 1934 purple prose in something from 1968 is a challenge. But I mean, the subtitles don't exactly convey that. But even the subtitles, you know, it's pretty, you know, who, who says the white sheet of boredom longs for the diamond of crime? I've never heard anybody say that myself, but... Rambo himself is just a fascinating figure. When was your first time that you ran across him? Oh, a long time ago. Um, my um, PhD is, in, is about the Meiji, late Meiji, early Taisho period of the symbolist poets. I love that prose. The prose from that turning point is really an amazingly rich uh, field. And nobody, I mean, that's not language that happens anymore. Rambo was like a kind of ancillary a discovery because I, uh, the people I was doing weren't in his circles. But then when I'm, I'm very interested in the question of genre and the politics around genre and genre shaming, I was an early defender of Rambo. And also besides, you know, Japanese popular uh, writing can be very high level language because, you know, they have this intense education system. You know, there was there were two translations of the complete works of Hegel by 1924 in Japanese. And we don't have one in English yet to say popular versus high, high low pressure. The configurations are different in Japan. But I, I also, I mean, I champion genre in English too. I, I think these, these kind of guardians of high culture are awful and anti-intellectual too. I can imagine if he was in the United States, he'd probably be writing for like a black mask at the time. And so many of those writers are brilliant, but yeah, that was the gutter. Absolutely. Yeah. The breathtaking. I mean, uh, I think Chandler and, uh, and Hammett are just breathtaking stylists in very different ways. I mean, Hammett's streamlined stuff is amazing. And then Chandler's pro, I mean, lyricism is just, and I named my dog after Chandler actually. Rambo doesn't have that problem because he's this super stylist. In fact, I bet you Japanese high school students nowadays probably couldn't read him in the original. It's that, you know, because also, you know, the kanji spelling and everything has changed radically after World War II. So, I mean, sorry, I'm wandering around. I think that this is a tribute to how complex these films are, the components, because you get Rambo and you get Mishima. But 
then you get these directors because it's very interesting who the directors are and who the actors are. Now, in 1962, it's uh, Inoue Umetsugu. Now, he's a fascinating guy. He did a lot of um, sort of crime dramas that always included music in the 1950s. He even did like these things called like jazz crime dramas, you know. But then he gets this job in 62. Later on, he will go to Hong Kong. You know, he will make Mandarin language musicals in the 1960s. So by the time the 1968 film comes out, he's already in Hong Kong doing these musicals called like um, Hong Kong Nocturne. And um, there's one called The Teardrop Diamond, which is another musical crime fiction. At the end of his career, which is really interesting, he had a long running one of the weirdest crime television shows ever made. It's called The Hangman. And The Hangman is a group of extra legal crime fighters who would find people who were getting away with crimes and shame them publicly in incredibly bizarre ways. And Inoue's assistant director was Mike Takashi. That's where he got his start. I really love the history of these, these things. That There's so many things that go through all of these things, right? Then in 68, it's, it's um, Fukusaku Kinji, who's already made a couple interesting gangster films, but not anything like what he's about to do. You know, once you get into 1970 with Street Mobster, and then 1974 with, I was 73 with um, Graveyard of Honor, and then the five, the five series, you know, the, the Battles Without Honor, uh, Kinji Naki Tatakai, those really make us, but this is his, this is the cusp of that. He's an unusual choice as a director for this one, but you'll see the differences. You notice how there's always these like these weird, awkward musical numbers in the in the '62. That's that's a very typical Inoue, and he he actually turns it into a whole art form in Hong Kong. And with Kurosawa, you get these moody things that he will then extend later once he meets the um, cinematographer. Well, I'll think of his name in a second. But his cinematographer for his his uh, early 70s things is like one of the great geniuses. He doesn't have him yet. So we have this very stationary camera and and this kind of Baroque sort of symphony of shadows and blue light and everything that uh, will not be typical of Kusaka at all later. With Inoue, did he ever do anything quite like this i mean you talked about how he made these other musicals but i mean this kind of reminds me of some of those other pop movies like your black tight killers or some of the other or even um the loop in the third live action adaptation where you're just wild out there kind of stuff no he, he hadn't done anything that wild and i don't think he thought of this as a as a very wild film you know he was known as the fastest director in japan and that's why hong kong hired him he always went under schedule and often under budget. I think he just saw anything as a job, but he did his job really well. But no, he hadn't done anything exactly like this yet at all. And then, but he does make two really um, important films. The man, there's one called "The Man Who Caused a Storm" about a drummer that stars Ishikawa Yujiro. And I'm not a Yujiro fan, but he's fantastic in this film. I, I highly recommend it. That's the film that probably put Inoue on the map. That's just before Black Lizard. That is probably his masterpiece in Japanese language films. I found it interesting, too, that Kaneido Shindo is uh, the writer of this or did the adaptation. 
Yes, I'm. That's surprising. So he probably reigned in the excesses of Mishima to some extent, but it's still not. I mean, I don't really think that that's up to his um, amazing, you know, abilities. I mean, he, he is one of the great screenwriters of Japan. I don't think that the script is really that dazzling. That's <laughs> the truth. But he, I mean, it must have been, you know, a good job. This is Daie. You know, you don't say no to Daie. Then now the other thing that's interesting is the kind of actors they were able to get. In uh, the first one, you get Kyo Machiko, you know, who is an enormous, an enormous power in the studios right now. Of course, everybody knows her from Rashomon, but then, you know, she has a career that's just almost unmatchable. I think the only person who matches her is somebody like um, Wakao Ayako. So Kyo Machiko is an enormous name. And then you get um, Kawaguchi Hiroshi. Who, who is, you know, a pretty boy who can give a competent performance, but is also the son of the president of Daie. So you have, and then Kano Junko, who plays Sakai. She should have been more famous than she ended up being. But in the early 60s, Kano Junko was a formidable actress. She usually played um, down and out women or women that had been around the block a little bit. So her playing this kind of naive rich man's daughter is, is not how we usually see her. Is the Akechi character from Rambo, is that kind of his Sherlock Holmes or his uh, Dupont? He really liked Sherlock Holmes, um, but he wanted somebody that was cooler. You know, Akechi is far more urbane than, than Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he, he can like go to the Ginza and blend in, you know, like Sherlock Holmes could, ne- could have never. Well, obviously, he could have blended in the Ginza, but Akechi has this adaptability that I don't really see in Holmes, you know, and he was a very hands-on guy. I mean, he smuggles himself onto that boat by hiding in a sofa and then disguises himself as an ancient hunchback. You know, I don't really quite see Holmes doing that, right? He has better lines in the in the Rambo stories. He's far more personable in the actual prose. He's a little stiff in these two. I, I think it's because the, the focus is entirely on the mythos of the, you know, the female criminal. They sort of underplay other detectives in these, except through her eyes. You know, the detective's value in these is that uh, he's the object of her desire. That's not the case. I mean, that ha- does happen in this prose, but uh, in the prose, it's about his acumen, you know, that he he really does meet all challenges. And that's completely deflated in these films, which I think is really interesting. It's funny because we're talking about a lot of really big personalities and Yukio Mishima is one of the biggest and just the amount of work that he did over the years, his political views, just his physique, all of these things. He's just such a, a fascinating character and that he's part of this whole mix, too, is wild. He's sort of my bet noir because, I mean, I love him and he's an amazing writer when he's good, but he wrote a lot. I translated an essay he wrote for a women's magazine called My Theory of Narcissism. And I've never been able to get it published because it's just so awful. He says, this is a direct quote, women like the ancient reptiles have two brains, one in the head and one near their cervix. And this is for a women's magazine, you know, but men have, and women are condoomed to their trivial narcissism sitting in front of their, their makeup mirror, while men's narcissism is dynamic. Its epitome is either in war or in boxing matches, you know, you have to see it to believe it. So I'm not a fan of his views. I'm a fan of his style, but I did the subtitles for the Masamoto film 
Karakaze Yaro, oh, do yeah, that's what you call Afraid to Die. I read his, his like informal diary for shooting it. It's amazing. He's so delusionalized that he believes that he's really a great film star. Uh, Masamura and the cast said that that was the worst experience they ever had because Mishima was really, really, really popular then. I mean, he was very powerful with his publishers. And Masamura and Mishima were actually in class together during World War II. The colleges then actually had homerooms, just like, you know, grammar schools did. So they were in homeroom together in 1941. Mishima, uh, Mishima was doing American literature. And I, I don't know how you do that in World War II, but I guess it was just called literature then. And Masamura was doing law, which I think is even more mysterious. What on earth was law in Imperial Japan? But then, so they knew each other. And then, so Mishima, Masamura was called into DIA offices and saying, you are now going to um, direct Mishima in a film. And these are his requirements. He had his conditions. He had to get to wear a black leather jacket and he had to die at the end. That's all. That's it. So he just sort of poses in the film. And the other problem was that when he got nervous about his delivery, in his scenes with Wakao Ayako, he would slap her, whether or not it was in the script or not. And sometimes they would have to like call him off. And she just thought that was her job. You know, she she was more tolerant than Masamura was. But so his debut in film is not is not in any way auspicious. So at least that he was like mostly paralyzed in uh, in the uh, Black Lizard one. So I guess he was people were safe from him. But but remember at the same time. That he was making uh, Afraid to Die, he was writing the, his um, story Patriotism, which he'll then film later. What I see in that film is actually an in a, is a, is an accidental documentary of a man succumbing to his own fantasy. He is in the midst of becoming uh, that right wing ideologue that he imagines himself to be during that filming. Then by the time he gets to Black Lizard, he's already that. You know, if he, in fact, he only has two more years to live. The subtext of these films is highly, highly interesting. I didn't realize at first that he also wrote the play that Black Rose was based on. Yeah, his plays are terrible, though. I've seen his play, um, what is called Madame de Sade. I don't know how anyone sits through it. You know, it's just entirely monologues to the audience. that They're so florid that, you know, you just can't. I mean, they're unbearable. I mean, Madame de Sade itself is like a sadistic attack on who's ever listening to it. When I, I think consider these films, um, I haven't really taken his plays very seriously. I mean, these are really still Rambo things. It's but it's interesting how both films streamline the story. You know, it's, the story is far more complex. Remember the guy that that fakes his own suicide. In the story, he has killed his he has strangled his ex girlfriend and killed her boyfriend and hid them in his closet. So then they they steal a body from Tokyo Medical Tokyo University Medical School and throw it out a window. I mean, that's a long thing. And, but that's all cut out because I think that the films need you to be able to redeem that character. You know, that character is unredeemable in the in the in the story. You know, it's very interesting that both of them chose to do that. Yeah, that he's the eventual love interest at one point. It's like, okay. But remember, he's the love interest of the imposter. He falls in love with the fake Sanai. That's so interesting, right? And then the second film is played by Kimura Isao. That's the casting I find most amazing. Kimura Isao 
Oz's debut was the gunman in uh, Stray Dog in 1949, which is one of my favorite Kurosawa films. You know, he plays the self-tortured man at the end. It's unbelievable. But then he's the youngest samurai in The Seven Samurai. I had the great honor to interview and, and have dinner with Okada Mariko once. And she had nothing but praise for uh, Kimura So She said he was one of the most serious actors she'd ever worked with. And, you know, she's been in 150 films. And he, and later in his life, you know, he also dies not very long after that film. Uh, he got, he was very ill at the time. But he uh, founded a very important Japanese theater group that he completely dedicated himself to in the 1960s, which is another reason that it's very odd that he, chose to do that role. So, so there's a lot in these to unpack. Oh, yeah. Well, we haven't even talked about Miwa. Oh, yeah. My God. Forget <laughs> Miwa. Yeah, I know. From what I understand, Miwa is one of dozens, hundreds. I don't know how many actors slash actresses that there were. And I don't know how much that is just a tradition of the theater this cross-dressing or is it more of a like a transsexual type of thing like what what is going on with this miwa is is his own type and actually jane uh, um carol and i talked about how what pronoun to use for him i'm going to use him as the performer because he did not choose a, a woman's name for his stage name his stage name is miwa uh, akihiro and Ak- akihiro is definitely a male name okay and sometimes he plays either a male or somebody that's really ambiguous you can't really quite tell which gender he is he obviously plays a woman in black lizard film so and black rose hotel so in those i will refer to the character as she but i would still refer to him as him and that's what he does now the problem is that i've never talked about him in english before in japanese you don't have this problem because you don't use pronouns and you usually drop the subject of the sentence so uh, I've been watching like TV shows talking about him. No one ever uses a pronoun in talking about him because they don't. You don't use them for anybody. I mean, this is the kind of wonderful complexity of the language that made me love it. You know, there's at least 32 pronouns that you could use. So they have all these pronouns. And then they said, but don't use any of them. You never use anata. You know, like the one of the biggest crimes that Japanese language textbooks ever said is to tell uh, Americans said anata is the polite word for you. If you said that to like somebody in polite society, you might as well slap them. You, you, there's no reason to do that. You either use their surname as the mode of address or their title. Even like a, your neighbor, you don't say, hey, you, you say, oh, you know, revered next door person, otonari-sama. So it's really easy. The, the, this whole problem with pronouns we have is a very specifically English language problem. Was Miwa, was that more of a stunt casting kind of thing? He was a longtime, highly respected, highly in demand performer, um, even in the 50s. There's a fantastic film that I do want to be writing about soon by Kawashima Yuzo, one of my my most revered directors. Uh, he, he made, in 1958, he made a film called Onna Daru, which means to be a woman. And it stars Arasetsuko. And she's older then. But the, so it's called the to be a woman. And then the first thing you see is Miwa on a circular floor rotating. And he's in a he's in a white gown and but clearly male singing to be a woman. This is 1958. And he, he appears in other things. He appears in um, Masamura Yasuzo's film, 
Danyu, uh, the warm current. He, he plays a, a sort of a dandy uh, singing in French on a TV show. I mean, so he's been around and he's really, really, he was very much in Japan through the whole time. And there's nobody really quite like him. Uh, he's also a wonderful uh, speaker. And, you know, now he's a voice actor. He does a lot of uh, anime. I was surprised at just how long his career's lasted. He must be at least 79 now, I think. Very elegant. I was mostly familiar with him, with his work with uh, Teriyama, with Throw Away Your Books and Rallying the Streets. The other guy that's really important with Teriyama is Mikami Hiroshi, who's more famous in the West for starring in uh, Swallowtail Butterfly. Mikami is like the young son, the young boy with like like on the threshold of sexual awakening in the Teriyama films. Miwa had um, more relation with uh, Teriyama on stage than in film. Yeah, that's the tough thing with Teriyama is just how much stage work he did and how, you know, there, I know there's recordings of that, but none of it's subtitled that I've been able to find. No, that's true. And his writing is amazing. He, he was a Tonka poet, too. And he, he also wrote about poetry really well. I wonder if his work is still caught up in all the legal stuff, because I know his mother was very protective of his rights and that they're so tough to even find his movies a lot of times. And it's so interesting because he was so obsessed with his mother, apparently. At least one of his, no, two of his films are a boy trying to solve the mystery of his mother. You know, now we know why. <laughs> of course, that was true with Mishima's widow, too. Remember, she had, you know, she held on to his uh, reputation with an iron fist. You couldn't even suggest that he was gay in Japan at all until she passed away. Patriotism was just one of the most impossible things to find for so many years. Well, you know, they burned a lot of the prints. The Columbia saved one in a vault because she really wanted it destroyed. But that was not for the gay stuff. That was for, you know, because it turned out to be a rehearsal for his suicide, you know. I mean, and this is the second time he did it, you know. he He's in... Um, Gosha Hideo's wonderful film, Tenchu, Heaven's Punishment, you know, where he plays a, a historical character who is falsely accused of killing somebody. So he says, let me see the sword. And then he kills himself. Ishima does that. And, then, and he, he's in this film before he makes patriotism. So he actually had two on-screen rehearsals for that silly suicide. Um, and, you know, it was really awful. What happened was... Um, he didn't know. He didn't realize it was going to hurt that much. This is these are the things we got from the police report and the survivors. So when he um, put the, the sword in, the pain was too great. So he actually asked the second command to behead him early. But you know, Mishima was such a bodybuilder; his neck muscles were incredibly developed, and the sword wasn't sharp enough. So he had to keep hacking away. So apparently, Mishima was in incredible agony for a long time because it was really hard to cut his head off. Now, I was at the, uh, the Center for Japanese Studies as a fledgling graduate student, and the, the, the secretary there encouraged us, like, we'd, sometimes we'd look like we were down, because this language is really hard. And so there was one time I think I was like trying to use a Japanese typewriter in the office, which is, you, you can't imagine what that's like. But anyway, so I'm sitting there like baffled and she said, oh, I have something that will cheer you up. And she opens like this sort of like this thing that's like treasuring a photograph. And she shows me a photograph of Mishima's head lying on the floor of the self-defense self, self -defense forces headquarters. And she said, 
see anyone can achieve greatness. These movies, are they considered trash culture or are they considered great works of art? Yeah, I don't think they're taken very seriously. They certainly weren't when they were released. Yeah, that's true. In Tokyo, at least, there there are two or three really wonderful uh, retro film houses, and that's they will show you everything. So that's how I. That's actually how I got a, a bigger canon in my head than that. In those kind of places, they would take something like Black Lizard seriously. But the problem is that when the West gets like two films, that's like seventy films you haven't gotten. I mean, could, uh, Kawashima Yuzo should be so famous in the West, and he's only now trickling in. And that was true with Masamoto Yasuzo, too. I was actually part of the team that brought the, the films to the West originally with, with Phantom of Films. I was on that team. To, I helped them get the rights to those first five films, and then I did pamphlets for them and the subtitles. Uh, and it was great to actually introduce, like literally introduce Masamura to America, while everybody in Europe had known him for years, you know, Antonioni got out of his sick bed in Rome to go to a Masamura festival, you know, and nobody had ever heard of him in America. So that thing, that kind of thing happens all the time. In a way, I've not seen very many of his films. He's got 108 credits. And I imagine if Kuro Tokaji was shown in a theater, people would go nuts. It's so much fun. Oh, it is fun. But again, you have to have the right attitude. I've seen lots of people walk out of films like that really fast. I have never understood that. The last time I was in Japan, I uh, they had a um, uh, retrospective, uh, which brought back a re- new restored 35 millimeter print of Tokyo Drifter. And, you know, I've seen it many times on DVD and, you know, taught it and everything. But to see it uh, in an actual theater at 35 millimeter, you can't imagine how newly strange that film is, you know, and also to see it with a Japanese crowd, many of whom had never seen it before. Uh, I was with a Japanese colleague who said, what on earth is happening? <laughs> like, is this right? Is this the right reel? Is like, I just love it. You know, there's a, there's also a, uh, you know, I lived in Korea for seven years and there's a crazy filmmaker named Kim Gyeong. I mean, who I really love, you know, he did uh, chasing a killer butterfly and I was at the Korean Film Archives. They had a theater. And I had seen it a lot on DVD because I, I really liked that guy. So I, I was really interested in seeing what our audience reaction was. And so we're in this theater. And after 10 minutes, an old man shouts at the screen, what the hell is this? I want my money back. And somebody else shouted at him, you got in for free. I think the point of this uh, rambling anecdote, there's a certain kind of eccentricity that isn't for everyone. But it is just so invigorating. You know, I think it really energizes the cinephilia. I'm always happy when I hear the Shaw Brothers fanfare, you know, at the beginning of when you hear that or when you see the Nikatsu sort of fanning thing. It means that you're guaranteed something. There's a certain guarantee with that brand. Uh, And I certainly think that's true. I mean, that's true in different ways with the later um, Kusaka Kinji, because I'm also a very big Yakuza fan. But um, with something like Black Lizard, it's a kind of eccentricity that is wonderfully unapologetic. You know, it never tries to naturalize itself or justify itself. Even the moral at the end is completely undercut by the fact that nobody's who they're supposed to be. It's a celebration of the fake. 
And I love how that plays right into all of Rambo's themes of the doubles. And I mean, even to have the person hiding in the couch and all these things, it's just like, it. I love how he has his fetishes and he makes no bones about it. Yeah. And he he loved codes and crypt, cryptography and stuff. And his, uh, I think his untranslated things, there's all these things about code, uh, like codifying a koan and he was really an amazing person. Is anybody writing about or sharing these films as far as, you know, letting people know that there are all these amazing movies out here, these kind of, as you were saying, these eccentricities? There's a wonderful young scholar named Will Carroll, who's really the guy to watch. He wrote a fantastic uh, dissertation for Chicago on Suzuki Seijun. And now it's coming in. Then he's rewritten it as a book. It will be out in August. He is the guy to watch. And he also not only just wrote the, the greatest book on Suzuki Seijun ever, better than anything in Japanese on him, he has established a distribution network to make sure that people in America can see these films. Uh, so, yeah, I would, I would say that he's sort of my hero in the sense of this kind of pioneering to get these, these indescribable films out there. So you've done all this work with Japanese scholarship, but you're living in Taiwan. How does that happen? I was a tenured professor at University of California, Santa Cruz, and I got really disaffected with the United States when George Bush won the second time. You know, the first time he didn't win, but the second time America chose him. And I always was looking for a way out. And as things declined, UC Santa Cruz was a great school, but then it sort of turned into a kind of corporate thing towards the end. So I um, went as a visiting professor to uh, Korea National University of the Arts and really liked Korea. So I stayed there for a while. And then, I mean, actually for a long time, I was there for twice for a year at a time. And then I was there for seven years straight. I got involved in sort of very awful politics between the president that they wanted to keep me, but the president of the university didn't, et cetera. So I took a, a, a year off to, to be a visiting professor in Taiwan. And we liked each other so much. The university and I, they created a position for me so I stayed there. There was National Jiaoda University. And now I'm uh, in Taichung. I'm at a, at a different school, but I, I really love Taiwan. It's it's my home. But yeah, it's a, an unusual life. And so I've lived in two Japanese colonies and also India. So I've lived in British and I toured the Soviet Union. So I'm also all clear for all the enemies of the United States. And I also lived in Germany and Austria, too. I mean, that was a, when I was a kid. I mean, well, not a kid, but an undergraduate. But yeah, so I'm very lucky. I have a my view of the world has been really enhanced by this. And also my view of Asia has really been enhanced by living somewhere other than Japan. My earlier days, everything was Japan. And then I realized how my outlook that was once I moved to Korea. But I love Japan. And I can't wait to get back. You know, COVID is making it difficult, but I'm always happy in Japan. Professor Jackson, thank you so much for your time. This was so great. That was fun. よろしくね、提供からしてるわ。犯罪が近づいたのよ。いや、実は犯人は娘よりも私の非道の代や、エジプトの星を狙ってると思うんだが。エジプトの星私の紋章。この優しい二の腕の黒と影や黒と影という
を調べて私まだあなたみたいな探偵に会ったことがありませんこんなに心底から犯罪を愛し犯罪にロマンチックな憧れを寄せている探偵僕は興味を持つのは第三の女のような純粋で優しい犯罪者に対してだけなんです We are back, and we are talking about, you guessed it, Black Lizard, but this time we're going to be moving on to the 1968 version exclusively because there's a lot to unpack here. The poster for this or the VHS box cover is so deceptive as far as having Yukio Mishima on the box cover along with Miwa, but him there with his little white jumpsuit and the, the knife and all that kind of stuff. He shows up in this movie for what, five minutes, if that? I think we're lucky if it's five minutes, but it's still kind of a nice nod because this is based on his play, which was based on the Rampo story. And I talked about my first time watching this, but I didn't ask you guys when you first encountered this one. Do you remember? I think you might have said, Carol, that you watched this when you were in high school? Late teens, early 20s, I think. I think I said before I, I was looking for something campy and I got it. I think I appreciate it more now that I'm older and have seen more movies and I appreciate style more. Like, not that I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I think it's one of those things you have to see a number of times, I think, to really appreciate what it's accomplishing and what they're doing. I didn't appreciate outfits as much and style, and it's got outfits and style to burn. I wouldn't be surprised if one of these days we get a nod to this on like, RuPaul's Drag Race or something, because some of these outfits that Miwa wears and other characters as well, they are just killer. Yeah, see, now I see a history that we could have had in our own movies where we could have had drag queens in doing like melodramas, which is like more of a Black Rose Mansion thing and these crime thrillers like this and all kinds of stuff. And instead, we did not get that. Sam, when, when was the first time you saw this one? I didn't see this one until more recently. And my introduction to like this type of cinema was Black Tight Killers, which, as we talked about, is way more, you know, campy, spy spoof. And that I saw in my late teens, early 20s. And exactly like Carol just said, I think if I saw it then, I would have thought, like, oh, this is fun and colorful, but I don't think I would have appreciated it as much. Until more recently, or at least until like I was an actual adult and had read some Phantomas and saw all the Mabuza films and like just had a deeper appreciation for really gorgeously staged kind of criminal mastermind movies. Cause yeah, it's, there's just so much to talk about. This was probably my first Fukasaku and he has. I don't want to say a bag of tricks because that makes it sound like he's limited in what he can do. He has some favorite techniques that he likes to use. This whole thing, you know, I, I talked about Graveyard of Honor a couple of years ago and just the camera in that 
is not mounted to anything in the world. You can go 360 degrees, you go up, you go down, you go every single place that you want. And he definitely is doing a lot of that in here. And that's this was the first time I ever saw a camera act as wild as this. I think he's more controlled in Graveyard of Honor, as well as it feels like a more mature work. This one is definitely playing into the camp, and he just seems to be having a great time. And thus, as the audience, I'm having a great time. And the use of, like, oh my god, I love when he uses, like, colored filters and tinting and just all of these wild techniques. And he has no fear, again, you know, talking about the 62, same thing in this one in the 68 there's no fear of like flashbacks or any of these things. Like, you know, talking about the Mishima scene, it's just like, oh yeah, here's Yukio Mishima and he's a human statue. And wouldn't you know, here's the flashback to show how he got this way. And it's just like, holy cow, like, boom, we are suddenly in a flashback. There's no introduction. Boom. We're just there. And it's, and he does that. He just has, I don't want to say no regard. He just, he has such a fun time with these movies. And it's just like, strap in. You better be on his wavelength because he's going to take you on a ride. He's such a wild filmmaker. If I had seen this when I was younger, and then I I had watched some of his Yakuza films, I never would have known it was the same director. But like, now having seen more of his, his work and more of his films in different genres, it's like you definitely start to get, like you were saying, the sort of bag of tricks. But like, somewhat recently... When Sony Chiba passed, I watched, I think it's called Samurai Reincarnation. It's from like 82, and it's this totally insane, supernatural horror samurai movie. But it does weird, like similar lighting staging things to Black Lizard. And it just made me so excited to see these movies that are like 15 years apart. And very different genre-wise, but it's like, okay, now, like, the older I get and the more of his movies I watch, even when they feel tonally different or stylistically different, it's like you can start to see the crazy similarities. My first one was actually Green Slime, which is unusual. Yeah, I can see some comparisons in in his tricks, but I I think some people get sort of blindsided by these other movies he's done because there's so much focus on his Yakuza movies. And so people think of him as like, oh, he does violence, like, cause there's battle Royale and there's the Yakuza movies, but it's like, no, he does these, he does these, he does do violence, but he does these things with violence and he does these things with weird little aliens. And he does these things with black lizard. Yeah. I think I went from black lizard to years later in seeing battle Royale and not making that connection. And then Message from Space, was that Fukasaka oh, as yeah. well? Yeah. I think so. And then it was, Rob was just like, oh yeah, Battles Without Honor and Humanity. And I was just like, whoa, this is such a change from the other films. It's like, wow, okay. Didn't he also do end up doing the Japanese section of Tora Tora Tora? Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. So I probably saw that first. They actually pulled all of us elementary school kids into the uh, lunchroom and showed us Torah, Torah, Torah. And I remember one of our teachers just blowing a gasket because there was a scene where uh, the planes are coming in, all the zeros are coming in, and all the, you know, the Americans are kind of waking up because they're just like, oh, fuck, we 
we got attacked, surprise, and one dude runs out in his underwear. And of course, for us in elementary school, that's just the funniest thing. And this fifth grade teacher was just like, what are you doing laughing at the-? And It's like, oh my God, dude, relax, settle down. So we kind of skirted around this a little bit. And I think that might have been a pun. The whole idea of this version, you know, we talked about who is the main character and this one for sure we are really invested in Black Lizard and that the poster, yeah, you've got Mishima, but really you've got Akihiro Miwa. And Akihiro Miwa is she, and I'm going to say she, I know Earl was saying he, but I'm just going to say she is amazing. And she comes from kind of a, a long tradition, uh, Onogata, I think it is, where you have male performers performing as female roles, you know, very Shakespearean. And she is our main character. She is Black Lizard. So then you add this whole other layer onto it that you have this man being this female criminal mastermind and talk about deception and all this, all of this other stuff starts to play into this. And they don't ever, like, I'm glad there's not some sort of weird reveal in this movie. I'm glad it's not suddenly like Z-Man, where it's just like, You've been abroad all along, right, Barzell? <laughs> goddamn broad! <laughs> goddamn ugly broad, Barzell! <laughs> An ugly broad! <laughs> I'm glad there's none of that stuff. It's just like, no, Miwa is Black Lizard. Black Lizard is gorgeous. Everybody loves her. She just is super stunning. And I love it. And I love that this one, you know, we talked about music. You know, the first, the 62 is definitely a musical. This one, though, will take a lot of breaks for Miwa to do songs. And I love it. She's she's an amazing singer. And I think she wrote at least some of these songs for the movie. I think you're right. And I know, like, if you go out to Miwa's site, her website, there are tons of CDs, and at least two or three of them have theme from Black Lizard on there. COVID has really screwed up my sense of time, but I think relatively recently she did a tour again. Wow, Like in really? her 80s, yeah, I think so. That's amazing. I mean, she's had such a, a great career, and I guess I'm kind of with you. I've always seen Miwa's pronouns as he, but I think at the time... When this movie was made, and certainly in the 70s when Miwa was working with Terry Yamashuji, people didn't really have the opportunity to use whatever pronouns they wanted. But what amazes me is that while so many of these Japanese kind of new wave experimental theater figures mostly had careers in the 60s and 70s, Miwa has done voice acting work for so many great like animated movies which i didn't realize until more recently and was like oh that makes so much sense because miwa has just such a great speaking voice and as well as singing voice her voice in the film in black lizard and in black rose mansion sounds very feminine there's no bass type of thing but I'm sure she could do that if she wanted to. So I imagine she could do a ton of voices. Well, in Princess Mononoke, Miwa does the voice from Moro, who is, for anyone who hasn't seen Mononoke, it's about this, one of the main characters is this girl who is raised by wolves. 
and they're these sort of like Shinto wolf gods. And the main wolf is called Moro, who is basically Mononoke's adoptive mother. And it's supposed to be a female wolf, but Miwa, I think, does that voice, and it's like a really deep voice. Like, deep to the point where the first time I saw it, I wondered if it was pitch-shifted, but I think it just might be that Miwa has, like, great vocal range and control. Having Miwa as our main character adds this whole other layer to things, but it works, because we talked about the camp aspect of it, and then having her presence in this movie just takes what is already a super campy story and just elevates it even higher into this whole other realm and just adds all of this other text onto what's going on with roles and with doubling and with all of the sexual tension. And I love that she, again, is just this whole spider woman. And it really makes the scene later when she's got her human statue garden. It's just like, I just assume that almost everybody in the human statue garden is a former lover. So it's just like, these are, she's rather than a black lizard, she's almost like a black widow where it's just like, I will have sex with you and then I will have you stuffed and mounted basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. And then I might still have sex with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, yes. That's the totally yeah. implication. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. Cause that trumpet player sees her kissing Mishima and, she, and he loses his mind. That's what pushes him over the edge into Sane's arms. Rampo. It's Rampo. So it's good. And Mishima. Rampo and Mishima coming together. <laughs> In the most unexpected but predictable way. I wanted to ask you guys, because I don't know what I think about this, so I thought I would ask you guys. Do you think that she would, either Miwa or uh, Kyo, would stuff in Mount Akechi if, if he gave in? I think after a while she would get bored. I don't think so. The way that she's presented in the story and the different films is... She has this like sexual erotic obsession with beauty, which it's all about, you know, the way she dresses and presents herself and her jewel collection. But ultimately, as we learn, it's she collects beautiful people. And the reason I think she wouldn't do that to him is because her attraction to him doesn't seem to be that he's beautiful it's that he has something he's like her only intellectual equal so i think instead of stuffing and mounting him she would just have to find some more and more extreme games like crime slash mystery solving games for them to play where it would wind up with one of them dying I see a lot more, and I could be wrong, but I see a lot more sexual tension between Miwa and Sane also in this, uh, or I should say Black Lizard and Sane in this. Like when they're on the boat and they are hearing voices in uh, Sane's room and they come in and she's gagged and they're like, you know, who the hell are you talking to? Or who's talking in this room? After they have their little conversation, uh, Black Lizard's like, oh, I have a wonderful museum to show you. And it just feels like really she's very lecherous towards Sine in this. And I'm like, oh, okay, there's definitely something going on here. I, Again, she doesn't care 
what's going on downstairs. It's just a matter of like, I am sexually attracted to you. I'm going to devour you and put you in this museum. I mean, I think that's part of what makes both the films so wonderfully queer is that attraction to Sine's character works for both versions of Black Lizard in different ways. Yeah, and I think it was more surprising to me with Mechiko Kyo because Miwa, in an American context, is coded as queer, you know, from the get-go. It's because we don't have the, we have a tradition, but it's a queer tradition. So seeing Machiko Kyo talk about Sane's breasts like that, very believably sexually attracted to her and being very out open about it in 1962 was wild. Really amazing to me. Yes. <laughs> this one is different too because you have the, let's put it this way, the actual penetration. We get this whole thing of the couch. And rather than just like, hey guys, sneak in here and tie up this couch and throw it in you know, the, the ocean, it's okay, tie up this couch. And then I'm going to stab this couch with this long knife. Not only do you have the stabbing, but you also had the blood and all the blood coming out from under the couch is just wild. And even before that, she's basically making love to this couch. It's like, it's kind of like what I was just saying. She, she makes love to it and then she kills it. And it's the same with all of her lovers. And she has that great line where she basically says, you know, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to stab you because I love you. And, you know, running you through with the sword while you're imprisoned in the couch is more humane than letting you drown in the ocean. (laughs) I do love that she makes sure that he knows that she's not killing herself in both of them, because she's lost, but because he unfairly tricked her and listened to her feelings. <laughs> well, from the couch or the walls. It feels like they wait a little while longer in the Fukusaku version to reveal that Sane is doubled. We don't necessarily know that uh, she's been a double this whole time. And then they kind of reveal a little bit more towards the end after we have this whole thing of, uh, you know, uh, Black Lizard's henchmen being like, oh no, I'm taking you away, I'm going to save you and stuff, which does to you know Earl's point earlier in the interview, it's kind of problematic when you do read the book and you're just like, oh, this guy, this the guy that I described earlier as the trumpet player, and here, you know, he's, I don't think he plays trumpet at all, but he's the guy with the fake beard most of the time, that he, in the book, murdered two people. <laughs> And that he's actually a double himself because they steal a corpse that looks like him, uh, basically re-murder, double murder the corpse uh, to make it look like he died. And then now he's living this new life with the fake beard. And I mean, God, fake beards are just all over this movie. It's just amazing. I always think of it as false whiskers, you know, from like, you can like just feel the 20s in it when they do. He's putting on his beards. The only reference to that you get in the Fukusaku version is you see a flash of this newspaper that says, like, musician killed himself. And I, I kind of wish we had gotten that that scene of them, like, swapping out the corpses, the lookalike corpses, because it's so good in the book. I think they might even go to the morgue, but they don't show the swapping and that would that is much more entertaining criming than than a catchy figuring it out. I don't understand 
why this is a thing. And hopefully at some point soon I will figure this out. Maybe one of you know the answer to this. But it seems like, so in a lot of Western horror movies, if somebody's possessed or they have something weird going on, sometimes they have black, like totally black contacts in or sometimes white contacts. But there are a couple Japanese movies from this period with those gold contacts. And this is one of them. Haunted Turkish Bathhouse is another one where it's like somebody turns into this like Kuroneko ghost cat spirit. And she has like the same gold contacts and they look so amazing. I don't know why it's not more of a thing. Like, I, I guess maybe they're uncomfortable to wear, but they look so good. I think they were in Vampire Doll, too. Yes, yes. But they, it also makes me think about they're like in the first episode. Of, well, not the first episode, but like one of the episodes of Star Trek when those like the the crewmen and the other like the two crewmen get possessed by the and become all powerful and you can tell they're all powerful now because they have silvery eyes. Yes, that's a good. So like point. maybe it's a sick. Maybe it was coming in in the sixties and then then people are like, oh well, no more of that. By the early seventies, they were like, all right, no more gold contacts. <laughs> Yeah. That yeah. wasn't Charlie X, was it? No, it was. I know because I can picture it in my head, but I can't picture who the actor was. It has Sally Kirkman in it and the other actor. Like, And uh, it's when Spock is still emotional and wearing the, the gold. Oh, yeah, which is so weird. And people are going to be so frustrated with us. They're going to be like, it's this episode. And- yeah, so this one has the whole thing of the hunchback. It doesn't have the guy with the bandage around his head. So it's, it's just weird to watch and see what is used, what's not. I have to say, I do love the reveal of the police a little bit more in this one. When he goes up, Akechi goes up and opens up the curtain. There's all those cops standing outside and they all run in. I love that. Artful crime fighting. You guys have to wait here till I open up the curtains. And you have to stay in the arrangement that I've made. But this one doesn't have a dance number with the statues. Which is a real shame. Yeah, because then you could see Mishima dancing, and I'm sure he would love that. You, you could, I could imagine a whole musical number in, in the museum where Mia is singing and they're all dancing. The whole nightclub number. Because I dig those 60s Japanese nightclub scenes. If Yeah, if I had a time machine, we would go back there right now. But... I can't imagine Mishima supporting whimsy enough to agree to do to do a musical scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to imagine. There's part of me that feels like the whole mo- reason this movie happened was that Mishima saw the whimsical musical scenes and was like, that's not the play I wrote. Kenji Fukasaku, fix it. And he's like, oh, sure, I'll fix it. There will be no whimsy. No whimsy and a cameo of me with my bulging muscles, so bulging that you can see the veins. Even in a non-HD Blu-ray sort of fuzzy bootleg version, you can still see the veins in his arms. (laughs) That is the real shame of watching this movie now is just because, like I said, there's no real good copy of it like so, so i did a little research and apparently that vhs that was floating out there was from 1985 and like i said as far as i know that hasn't been released on dvd or blu-ray after that so 
it's really crappy looking. At least it feels like the version of Black Rose or Black Rose Mansion, depending on what you want to go with. feels like that one looked a lot better. So I imagine that that was a, a Blu-ray or a DVD rip. But Black Lizard Man, it just... This needs to be restored. You know, all of these Fukusakus that Arrow has been putting out for years now, it's like, where's this one? You know, it, it really deserves a better release. Fukusaku made so many movies, but they all look, or at least all the ones that I've seen, look so amazing. Sometimes when I think about, like, some of the lower budget, like, 70s Italian movies, or even, like, 70s British cult movies... When they get upgraded to Blu-ray, you're like, oh, it looks kind of fuzzy still. But like Fukasaku, like he was made for for Blu-ray, high def, giant TVs. Just the opening credits and closing credits alone with that blue tinting and the still images and all these things. Yeah, Fukasaku made a lot of movies, but I would say he's kind of a punter compared to anyway, who made like twice as many. <laughs> it's like, my goodness. And worked in for the Shaw Brothers, too. Like, I've worked with all five Japanese studios. Time to go work for the Shaw Brothers. Make some musicals for them with Cheng Pei Pei. And by the way, there is a Shaw Brothers movie called Black Lizard has nothing to do with this. But it's wild. But it's so good. Yes, it is. I highly support that they have a movie called Black Lizard, but do not be thinking that you're going to see, you know, uh, a human couch in this. I think they did the whole series of Black Rose movies, too, with, like, a female criminal. They did, but also their Black Lizard is so – it's almost as colorful, and it has weird doubling and also weird scenes where, like, a person that you heard that was dead comes back to life. And even though it doesn't have anything to do with the source material of these, it would make a weirdly good double feature with the Fukusaku. There's another version of Black Lizard or Kuroto Kage that it was a TV movie or was it from the 2000s? So like they made yet another adaptation, but I wasn't really able to track it down. And from what I understand, it's not nearly as stylish as these other two movies, but I'd still be willing to give it a shot. I'd love to see what they do with an updated version. It's hard to compete. Like if you like style, it's hard to compete with the style of like a stylish 60s movie, especially a Japanese one. So after Black Lizard was made, made a lot of money, apparently, and it was that Shukiko came to Fukusaku and said, hey, we want you to make another one like this. So they got another play by uh, Mishima. They had Miwa back, and they made Black Rose or Black Rose Mansion. Just depends on where you look, uh, what the title is. And... um by the way, I want to read this amazing review of it that's on Amazon, which goes by the uh, the title "Genderly Confused and Boring" too. <laughs> oh, no. This is a slow, insipid, all but plotless film. I suppose a man playing an irresistible woman was a bit of a kick in 1969, but not today, especially as it is obvious the star is not a real woman. Her singing is strictly low-grade Amanda Lear as well. There's no reveal at the end, not a wig pulled off, or a reason why this enchantress destroys destroys the men who fall in love with her at the moment they see her. She repeatedly states, 
I'm a bad woman. I agree. Not to mention that she's a bad woman in a bad movie. Not even good for a few chuckles. How dare they insult Miwa and Amanda Lear in the same paragraph? What an asshole. Foolishness. So, Black Rose Mansion. Tell me what you guys think of Black Rose Mansion. Uh, are you going to write your uh, your horrible review uh, for Amazon after this? I might write a horrible review of that review. <laughs> the other thing, beyond the insult to fine, fine performers, it's really misreading the time. Because if there is a time for movies with drag queens in it, in the United States, it is now. <laughs> I would watch a whole Jinx Monsoon spy you know, trilogy, 20 films with Jinx just out there, like killing men and committing crimes. Yeah, please. For years, I've wanted to see drag queens in a Douglas Sirk movie. And Black Rose Mansion feels very close to that movie, except for it's a Fukusaku movie, which is super fabulous and great anyway. But it's the gothic melodrama with a woman who bent keep telling you're destroying me as I destroy myself when you tell me that you're not interested. I find it delightful and enjoyable. And I, I turns turns out I see why people like to see Miwa flourish with a sword. It was great when she pulled out a sword in Black Lizard, and it's very exciting and fun in Black Rose Mansion, even though it's not really that kind of action movie with thrills and escapes and daring do it's dudes at her nightclub feeling bad that she doesn't love them i have never agreed with anyone more than everything carol just said yes drag queens and douglas sirk (laughs) (laughs) yay (laughs) i also have a real soft spot for anything like japanese gothic melodrama romanticism so i don't know if i love this as much as Fukusawa's Black Lizard, but I love it. So I just looked up the other two Kuro Tokaje uh, adaptations. One is from 2015. And so there are two. One's from 2015 and one is from 2019. And these are totally, they have to be Rampo adaptations because one's like, uh, the 2019 is set in the not-too-distant future, where it's commonplace for high-tech crimes to get through cyber defenses. There we go. Isewe Shobei, a man of great wealth who is also a well-known collector of gems, asked private investigator Akechi Kogoro to provide personal protection for his daughter, Sane. So, totally, it's another black lizard. And then the 2015 one is... The mysterious female thief Kuroto Kaje steals all beautiful things from treasures to military secrets that will become money. So, yeah, I would love to see these other versions of this. And I don't know if they're one is I think the 2015 is a TV show, but it's or maybe it's a TV movie because it's 110 minutes. And then the other one is just yeah, full length movie as well. So I love that they're continuing to make adaptations and talk about funny that they are four years apart. Not quite the six years of the, the two earlier films we were talking about, but yeah, four years apart for these things, but everything seems to be normal color schemes. Ah, uh, yeah. What do you think of black Rose mansion, Mike black Rose mansion, man, talk about just again, the wildness of the, the flashbacks and we are just going back and forth in time and just 
the hot pink filter. Oh, yeah. I mean, it took me a couple times watching it before I started to really grasp what was going on in the film, because it was tough. The first time I watched it, if you're not fully invested, good luck, because there is not a real clear narrative through through line of this film. So for me, I had a hard time watching it, but I was just enjoying watching Miwa in this room full of men and just kind of all of these men. It, it feels very much like they're telling stories about their times with her and just, yeah, people are just dying left and right. And just, it's again, it's very, very wild. I, I think I prefer black lizard because there's definitely much more of a story to it. But, I mean, as a style exercise, I was all about Black Rose Mansion. The other two I love, I'm, I'm fine with Black Rose Mansion. Yeah, it's not one I'm going to rush out to see again. It feels the most like a play to me. And so if, like, if you're in the mood for, you know, sitting in, having your Masterpiece Theater kind of experience night with Miwa and Hot Pink Filters and Sad Sack Men, then it's, you know, like it's perfect for that. Miwa has and so outfits. many songs. Yes, songs and, and outfits. Yeah, the outfits are amazing. When we talked about like Arrows Plus Massacre, where I could just run Arrows Plus Massacre on a TV screen or, you know, on a screen 24-7 and just constantly get new things out of it, it feels like I would like Black Rose Mansion to just be playing all the time. And I think if it was playing in a nightclub where I had drinks and I had friends and we were able to just kind of take in parts of it and then eventually it would all kind of coalesce in my head, I think that would probably be the best way to do it. It's almost like expand Black Rose's um, nightclub into a real thing and just kind of interact with the film that way. But you don't need friends when you have Miwa. I'm really very bummed because there's a documentary about Miwa that I didn't find out about until just last week. And then when I ordered it, of course, it's like, oh, this will be here in early August. So I'm like, well, thank you very much. It's an hour and five minutes, and it's called Miwa Looking for Black Lizard. And it's actually directed by the same person, Pascal Alex Vincent, who has a movie in this year's Fantasia, which is a documentary about uh, Satoshi Kon, the illusionist, it's called. Seems like an interesting person, and it feels like there are, uh, he's definitely exploring a lot of gay themes. It's just like, great, more power to you. So I would love, I, I can't wait for this Miwa doc to show up. And even though it's a French DVD that I'm getting, it has English subtitles. So we're lucking out on that one. I feel like you could do a follow-up episode and talk about Terry Amashuji and Miwa's work there. So let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, start your engines! Come on, Mama! Fasten your seatbelts and get ready for fun. The gumball rally has begun! Whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa! Go! The Gumball Rally. And all out. Anything goes. Absolutely illegal race. From Times Square to the Pacific Ocean. No catalytic converter and no 55 mile an hour speed limit. The next time out, I'm going to make sure you get a driver's license. 35 magic hours, flat out against the red line. It's not a risk, it's a challenge. The drivers come in all shapes, 
sizes, and sexes. Hey, slow that thing down! If you catch me, you can have me. From all walks of life, all over the world. The first rule of Italian driving. What's behind me is not important. But in the Gumball Rally, the cars are the stars. Camaro, Corvette, Cobra, Porsche, Ferrari, Rolls-Royce, Kawasaki. They go over, under, around, and through. Anything that stands between them and the finish line. It's a mad, 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 mad world on wheels. Magnificent. But this is a race, man. Some things are more important than winning. So fasten your seatbelts. What's the matter with you? The Gumball Rally has begun. That's right. We'll be back next week talking about the Gumball Rally. Talk about a switch. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Carol. So, Carol, what has been keeping you busy lately? I'm still doing business at the Cultural Gutter, and people can find us at www.culturalgutter.com, and they can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Cultural Gutter. And Sam, what is the latest with you? So I have a, a podcast called Twitch of the Death Nerve. We've done a couple Japanese cinema episodes. I worked on an Arrow Girl related project where we do talk about Black Lizard. Hopefully that will be announced soon. I think I can softly say it's a zine and should be a really beautifully illustrated one, but I won't say yet because I can't who I'm working with, but hopefully that will come out soon because I'm really excited about it. I just did a video essay for the upcoming Vinegar Syndrome release of Writing Wrongs, which is this great Hong Kong action film that's super dark, super violent, and everyone should watch because it's wonderful. Not whimsical, though, at all. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I do, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, Life and Times Barney Miller, Raking on Bass. They are available where all finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
愛と共に寝る夜はときめきと悩みのソファ不眠症の星死体の瞳日のような吐息は Thank、you